I will read starting in verse 9 and read to verse 11. Hear now God's word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This, I remind you, is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word that is revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. That Him is You. And we ask, O Lord, that You make it a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating through uh, ligaments and muscles and indicating the thoughts of the heart. We pray that you will reveal our hearts to us this evening and that we will desire to love you more and not to sin against you. And we'll take delight in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I trust you know or have at least heard the REM song and the consistent refrain, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. That is not the title of this sermon. I have entitled this sermon, The End of the Word. Not the end of the world, the end of the Word. You may have been confused by that, but tonight's sermon is focused on the end or goal of the Word of God. Last week I asked you, what is the goal of Christian preaching? I said, one of the goals of Christian preaching is to encourage the congregation to seek the Lord while He may be found. In this sermon, I would like to get you to think about what the primary goal is of the Word of God. The author of Psalm 119 says that we would not sin against God. This is plain and simple. The end of the word of God is that we should not sin against God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer uh, two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy Him.
is not the glorification of God to not sin against God. To glorify Him is not to sin against Him. And that is the only rule, the Old and New Testament, by which we have access to the revelation of the only rule to glorify God and enjoy Him. However, you can't obey this merely by acknowledging and assenting to those words. Not sinning against God is hard work, as you well know. The world, the flesh, and the devil all desire to, uh, to have you fall and hence fail. They all war against your soul to keep you from obtaining the ultimate goal. And this leads us to the principal doctrine of this text. The ultimate goal of the Word of God is that we might not sin against God. The ultimate goal of the Word of God is that we might not sin against God. Under the exposition, I would like to discuss first with you the desire to not sin against God. Second, the duty that is commanded. And third, the delight of not sinning against God. So, first, the desire. Second, the duty. And third, the delight. First, the desire. This is a godly desire, isn't it? To not sin against God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you don't want to sin against God, isn't this to hunger and thirst after righteousness? To not sin against God is the desire to be righteous in all of your affairs. Is not that a godly desire? I would submit to you that it is a very godly desire. But what do you do if you don't have this desire? But you want to have this desire. I would recommend three things. Pray, name it, and repent of it. These things happen simultaneously, but these three things must happen if you expect God to grant this desire. First, prayer. The first thing you do is pray that you will have this godly desire. After all, some, Psalm 119 is in the form of a prayer. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Grant it so. I, I pray. I'm on my knees praying that you grant the desire of my heart. You, O oh Lord, may I not sin against you. It is said in the form of a prayer. When you get up in the morning, you have this desire or else you don't. I know when I have this desire. It is easy to say, I want to give glory to God. Enable me to keep from sinning against you. Those times 
Those are really great times. But I, but I confess that more often I don't have this desire. More often I don't have this desire. I can't say that or else I would be a hypocrite in the eyes of the Lord. But God is the safest place to confess that you don't have this, these godly desires. I do not desire to not sin against you. Please help me to have this desire. Second, name it. Name it. The second thing that is simultaneous to prayer is name it. Just the simple act of calling it by its name means that it does not have victory over you or not have control over you. You can name that you don't have the desire to not sin against God. By naming it, you can ultimately repent of it. Repent of not desiring to give all glory to God and enjoy Him forever. Repent of not desiring not to sin against Him. Pray in repentance. And don't give up your hearts until you are stirred. Pray, I don't desire not to sin against you. Enable me to, to, to have that. And I will wait upon you until you bless me with that godly desire. More often than not, He gives it, not every time, but more often He gives this desire to His people. The second heading is the duty. The duty. You cannot accomplish something without a duty. Like an officer in the military has duties to perform. Like a bus driver has duties to perform and, and uh, get at the end of the day and you can look back and see how you performed that duty or not. We have to have a duty if we can expect that to be accomplished. We have the duty of storing up God's word. And we look back on the day and see if we have accomplished that or not. The first point under this heading is to hide. To hide. The other modern translations say hide or uh, I hid or I have hidden your word. And that, I believe, is the the most faithful translation. Uh, And I have to... um, I have to wander from uh, the ESV. The word hide occurs 31 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. And most of the time, it is appropriately rendered to hide, not store up. Like the birth of, the, uh, uh, the birth of Moses in Exodus 2.2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him. For three months. Obviously, she had to hide Moses away. And like Rahab in Joshua 2.4, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
Thomas Manton says, A thing may be hidden in two ways, either to conceal it or to cherish and keep it. Let's take the first option. To conceal something. Like the two examples that I just recounted before, they were attempting to conceal. Two other examples are as Achan told Joshua in Joshua 7. Today I have sinned against uh, the Lord God of Israel. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. Achan meant to conceal the silver and the gold that he had coveted. And he sinned against the Lord. And like Joshua 10.17, the five kings were hidden in the cave of Machida. Thus, they were attempting to conceal themselves. But I don't believe that this is the meaning of this text. I think the better interpretation is to cherish something. Like in the New Testament parable of Jesus in Matthew thirteen forty four, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Obviously, he treasured and cherished that that the treasure was hidden in the field. There the treasure was precious to him. And so he cherished that treasure and had and had to purchase it. Like the pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. He cherished it so much that he had to have it, and he bought the pearl of great price. So what are we to hide or cherish? God's word. God's Word. We have the duty to store up God's Word. This means that we will meditate on God's Word. We will memorize God's Word and preach it to ourselves night and day. Because all Scripture is inspired by God. Or rather, all Scripture is breathed out by God. We only have godly desires if we store up or hide this spirit-wrought word in our hearts. Another passage that teaches the duty of hiding God's word is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May the word of Christ embody you, reside in you, or abide with you. This is what it means to store up or hide God's word. My daughter Leah, who's conspicuous, wants me to play hide and seek with her um, seemingly every day. 
conceivably every time I get home. It's not that often, but I feel like it is. And because I cherish her, and she is precious to me, I play hide and seek with her. This is the duty of every Christian. Because you cherish the word of God, you hide and seek in the Lord. Seek God in the word of God. Because it is precious to you, you cherish it. You cherish the word of God. Thomas Manton, again, says a really profound statement in, in this uh, in this, a Christian is to be a walking Bible. A Christian is to be a walking Bible. If he hides it, if he really cherishes the words of God and he keeps it hidden in his heart, he will be a truly walking Bible. That inspires me. Does it not you? To learn and meditate on the Word of God even more. To to cherish it more and more and more. Does that not inspire you? It inspires me. The Christian is to be a walking Bible. This runs over to the third and final heading, which is delight. The delight. To cherish God's word, as, a, as we have seen, is to delight in God's word. That means that you will love God's word and that you desire to hide it in your heart. To hide it in your heart. The beginning of verse 11 starts with these words. In my heart, I've stored up your words. The heart is spoken of 14 times in Psalm 119. That means in 176 verses, the heart is spoken of almost 13 times in 13 verses. In that case, I think that we can speak of the heart as very important to Psalm 119. We have already seen this a couple of times Uh, Before in verses 2, 7, and 10. This word in my heart adds another dimension to cherishing it, doesn't it? With these words, it indicates a delight in God's word. If you delight in God's word, you enjoy God's word and its revelation to you and about you. If you delight in God's word, you find in it words of pleasure. And my heart means that you love God's word better than any other book. This love of the Bible carries all your affections. Matthew Henry said, God's word is a treasure worth laying up. And there is no laying up it safely, but in our hearts. If we, have only, if we have it only in our houses or our hands, enemies may take it from us. If only in the heart, excuse me, if only in our heads, our memories may fail us. But if our hearts be delivered into the mold of it, 
and the impressions remain on our souls, it is safe. God's word is a treasure worth laying up, and there is no laying up of it safely except in our hearts. Let me, let me ask, what is this sin which he speaks of here? It is not transgression or iniquity. It is specifically sin. The term translated, uh, is translated uh, captures the idea of missing the mark or goal. It means to be at fault or to be blameworthy which is precisely antithetical to verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. That is to say, sin is a corruption. Sin is not being what we were made to be in the original creation. Not being or doing what God requires, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. Psalm 51 says, In sin did my mother conceive me. That is a consequence of ordinary generation. I was conceived of my father. I was conceived in the sin of my father Adam. But this is not what God initially made man to be. Instead, David continues in verse six: "Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart." That is, God made, that is, God made man upright with truth in his heart. And although sin has corrupted man, that is still what God desires man to be. A man of truth. And a man who learns wisdom and holds it firmly in his heart. And so David is praying for mercy and forgiveness for not being what he was meant to be. For being corrupt, not only in deed, but by my very nature. Robert Murray McShane once said in his spiritual diary, My heart is not at peace. Why? Because sin lieth at my door. Sin lies at the door, waiting for you and I to give access to our hearts. Do not let him in. Pray that God would give you grace to not sin against Him. The author of Psalm 119 says that I might not sin against you. And that is exactly what God wants from you. If you don't delight in the Word, in your heart, you will sin necessarily against the Lord. This leads to our applications. I want to give you three applications this evening. Thank God for revealing His Word. Thank God for revealing His Word. Aren't you thankful that God has revealed Himself in His Word? His most holy and inspired Word. He didn't leave us to our own devices or perversions of that revelation He revealed Himself clearly and truthfully in His Word. Thank Him for revealing us, revealing to us the Word that is found in the Bible. Thank God for the goal of His Word. 
Thank the Lord for the goal that is revealed in His Word, that we might not sin against God, that we ought to glorify Him in all our thoughts, words, and deeds, and to not sin. This is illustrated by the diary of David Brainerd. In the evening, I quote, In the evening my heart seemed tenderly to melt, and I trust was really humbled for indwelling corruptions. I mourned like a dove. I felt that all my unhappiness arose from my being a sinner. For with resignation I could welcome all other trials, but sin hung heavy against me. For God discovered to me the corruption of my heart. I went to bed with heaviness that I was a great sinner, though I did not doubt in the least God's love. Oh, that God would purge away my dross and take away my tin and make me seven times refined. End quote. Though we are great sinners, and Paul says this is a trustworthy statement and worthy of all acceptation that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the chief. But we, like Brainerd, should never doubt of God's love to us, that He is revealed in His Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as God's only begotten Son, that you and you have been brought to eternal life. Yet we should never lose sight of our sin. We are sinners. Like Brainerd, we should be humbled by our inner corruptions, by our sin, by our great sin. We should always believe that we are the chief of sinners and be humbled by that revelation and look again to Christ and thank the Lord that He gave us Jesus Christ. That's the third and final application. Thank God for Jesus. He was the only one who stored up God's Word in His heart so that He did not sin against God. He perfectly accomplished that. He is the only person who did this. And He is the only one who fulfilled all righteousness in the earthly ministry. By not sinning against God, but only walking uprightly according to God's Word. Like I said this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.20, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never knew sin. And He was fully human just as we are, yet without sin. He is a sympathetic high priest but without sin. Jesus was holy and harmless and undefiled. Put this on Jesus' lips and know that Jesus never sinned against God. He was utterly impeccable in His human nature so that we can have confidence that He saved us to the uttermost. So put this on your lips. 
or on Jesus' lips, I have stored up Your Word in my heart, and I never sinned in any way against God. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Jesus to us to save sinners. And He was perfectly righteous in all His doings, in all His thinkings, in all His work. He was perfectly sinless, perfectly impeccable, And we thank You, O God, for sending Him to us to take on flesh, to dwell among us, and so live the perfect life that we were unable to live and die the curse of death which we should have died. But thank You, Lord, for sending Him to us because we would inevitably be lost and under condemnation and wrath if You had not sent Him unto the world to save sinners. We pray that in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.